Well, good morning. It's been a um, really fun week for me, a, a busy week this last week, but a really great week for me at the church because I had the opportunity to speak in a, a couple different uh, smaller gatherings of our church uh, to see the relationships in the community. So this last Thursday, I had the opportunity to kick off our men's Thursday morning Bible study, what we call our huddle that meets at 6.15 on on Thursday mornings, had the opportunity to talk about the subject of sex. This week I will talk about money. We had just about 200 men there. Can you imagine 200 men gathering at 6.15 in the morning? We have a Thursday morning and a Saturday morning men's Bible study. I want to invite you men, if you're not plugged into something like that, to join us either Thursday morning, uh, Saturday morning. I spoke on the heels of a guy in our church who told this incredible, his incredible story of healing grace and recovery following years of sexual sin and addiction. Then I went to God's Word and looked at this subject from the Bible, and it was, it was just an amazing, amazing morning. I want to invite you men to join us. Then this past Friday night, I spoke at our single purpose ministry. That is our uh, mid-adult single ministry for singles 35 and above. And boy, is that place happening. They meet every, the second Friday of the month. And they have a meal. The food was really good. And they have this wonderful time of worship. And then a message. I got to deliver the message this last Friday night. There were about 180 mid-singles there, a majority from outside of our church. Some had driven as far as 50 miles to come to this, and they do that regularly. And I had the opportunity to tell these singles how much we love them here at Wheaton Bible Church, how much God loves them, how we long for singles to be increasingly a part of the body of Christ here. And so I say, if you are here and you're a single, 35 and above, man, you need to get to know Jonathan Zyman, our staff pastor that oversees us, and this thing is happening. We want to invite you to be a part. Now, having said that, we're going to jump into our series on the Gospel of Mark that we've entitled Follow Me. So grab a Bible, uh, turn your Bibles on, if that's how you follow, and turn to Mark chapter 1. We are in this marvelous series on, on Mark, and as I said last week, it was while I was reading the Gospel of Mark when I was in college that I came to Christ, that, that God saved me, opened my eyes, totally, completely transformed my life. And even though I didn't know much as a young 19-year-old, uh, in, in light of what we're going to talk about today, man, I passionately was committed to following Christ and, and fishing for other students that didn't know Christ. We're going to pick it up in verse 14, Mark chapter 1. Follow with me as we read these three paragraphs. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. Now let me just say, Mark doesn't tell us this, but Mark has uh, skipped over some of the beginning aspects of Jesus' ministry in, in Judea. And if you were to read the first couple chapters, first three chapters of the Gospel of John, John includes those in his Gospel, some events that Mark doesn't. So there's a gap, there's a time gap of some months between verse 13 and verse 14, which we're reading. 
And Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, we know him as Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, there are two parts of this passage for us uh, this morning. We want to look at the first paragraph, verses 14 and 15, look at Jesus' message. Then beginning in verse 16 through verse 20, we want to look at our Lord's method. So we're going to start with that first paragraph, verses 14 and 15, Jesus' message, his kingdom message. And I don't know how it is for you as you read this, but I'll tell you, a lot of people read what Jesus is saying here, other utterances of our Lord like this in different parts of the Gospels, and then they say, come on, give me a break. I mean, think about it. Look at all the injustice and crime and war and disease and poverty and abuse in the world really for the last 2,000 years and Jesus says my kingdom has come near you got to be kidding no thanks and that was precisely the problem of the Pharisees in Jesus day the reason they missed Jesus because they understood the kingdom to be a political thing, a domination thing, ushering in a life of bliss and no more problems. And the kingdom wasn't, and it isn't. As a matter of fact, this is demonstrated in verse 14. It's something we often miss as we start to talk about the kingdom here. Think about John. What we learn about John here is John is put into prison. Now, who was John? John was a godly, godly man. He was Jesus' advanced man. And if Jesus was establishing a political reign, how is it that his advanced man, this righteous man, this man that was seeing all sorts of fruit as a result of his ministry, how would it that be that he would end up in prison and not in a palace. As a matter of fact, things are about to go really bad for John the Baptist. A little later in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, we will, tell, we will learn, rather, that John the Baptist is beheaded at the hands of the political power brokers. Furthermore, if you look at the words in verse 14, put into prison, it's literally handed over, and that's the exact, those are the exact same words that later will describe Jesus' fate as he was arrested. He was handed over. Jesus' fate that led to his crucifixion. So John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. Not just Jesus' message, but the forerunner also in his conflict with authority. His arrest, his suffering, and his death. 
And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, well, what kind of kingdom is this? At the very least, we can say it's a kingdom where Jesus' followers will suffer. John suffered, and some like John will be put to death, killed. That's exactly what's ahead for Jesus. So the kingdom of God that Jesus describes here, or rather uh, mentions here in verse 15, isn't a political entity, it's a spiritual one. It's Jesus establishing his reign and his rule over all creation. It's Jesus defeating human and demonic evil. It's Jesus bringing justice and order that, that begins with his first coming but will not culminate until his second coming. So the kingdom of God is both a journey and a destination. According to uh, Jesus, it's already started, it, it has come near, but it's hardly finished. It, it, it's not yet in the fullness. And at the heart of this is the con continuing, the ongoing rescue of sinful fallen men and women who will turn from their sin and turn to God. That's repentance. And will depend upon Jesus who will die on the cross in our place for our sins. And that's belief. Belief here is dependence. It's, it's trust. Now I say all of this because we need to be really careful when we think about the kingdom. If we overemphasize the already part of the, or aspect of the kingdom, then what happens is we overweight our expectations. And, and, and today, and we see this in the church, we have um, significant expectations that are, that are really uh, on steroids relative to health and wealth and prosperity and, and healing. All good things, but we have this expectation that we should have it all now because the kingdom has drawn near. That's because we're overweighting what we should expect in the present. Uh, but if we neglect the present and overweight the future aspect of the kingdom and we overemphasize that, then, then what happens is we tend to withdraw. We tend to get cynical. We tend to become disengaged and fatalistic. And we are uncaring about the millions and millions of people around us that don't know Christ. And the injustice that God is calling us to step into and to address so the kingdom coming near is the divine acceleration of the outpouring of Jesus' grace and, and, and mercy through his coming, through the advent of Christ. In other words, what we have in verses 14 and 15, if you will, is a divine press conference. Jesus says, I'm here. The kingdom is near. Uh, we have breaking news. But instead, and this is what's so mind-boggling to me as I read this section, instead of following it with pomp and pageantry, I mean, this is God in the flesh. Instead of rolling out a red carpet and all sorts of cameras, all sorts of noise, all sorts of sophistication, as has, was often the case when kings were coronated, if you will, what does Jesus do? Jesus, in a sense, goes fishing. 
He goes to this remote part of the world, the, the Sea of Galilee, and he calls four unsophisticated men to himself. They were, they were fishermen. Uh, they had no status, no name, no, no power. Uh, they were nobodies in the eyes of the Roman world. And so Jesus goes from this press conference to calling these nobodies, these no-names, to himself. Now think of the parable of the mustard seed, a, a, a small beginning, this little seed. It's a very small beginning. So here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's so small, it's so insignificant, it's so unimpressive, if you will, by the standards of the world, that it's barely noticeable. Hardly caught the attention of the Roman Empire. So no wonder the Pharisees missed Jesus. They misunderstood the kingdom. Man, they wanted power. They wanted pomp. They wanted political domination, control. They wanted a pain-free, problem-free existence. And by the way, every time you say, man, I hate this situation, I don't like the way this is playing out, this is a major setback, man, this is so hard what I'm going through right now. Where in the world is Jesus? If you get to that point, you lapse into the same misconception of the Pharisees. Their misconception of the kingdom. John the Baptist, the advanced man, the forerunner, went to prison right as the kingdom was being announced. So the kingdom isn't about your circumstances. It's about your heart. It's not a political entity. It's not a domination thing, a pain-free life. It's a spiritual entity. And God often uses adversity, disappointment, loss, dysfunction, conflict, struggle to make us more like Him. And I wanted to lay that out because there's so much misunderstanding about this. And then we have these unrealistic expectations. Man, I didn't sign up for this, Jesus. So that's the message. That's his kingdom message. Now let's move to Jesus' method or his call of these four fishermen. I, I, this is to me so crazy, so counterintuitive. The kingdom of God is near and he's walking by the lake saying, hey, why not, Peter, why don't you come? Andrew, you come too. So counterintuitive to what you would expect that this has to be true. I mean, who, would have, who could have possibly thought up that God would inaugurate the kingdom this way? And so we have the call. Look at verse six, 17. The call is in verse 17. Jesus says, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I want to make three observations about that call this morning. And here's the first. We're way ahead of the game if we understand it's all grace. This call, it's all grace. And what I mean by that is it's all divine initiative. It's Jesus taking the initiative here. Now Jesus' message is for all. 
But the call is for a few. And these four do not choose Jesus. Jesus chooses them. And what's so interesting, and this is a matter of history, rabbis didn't operate this way. They didn't do this. Rabbis, in Jesus' day, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, this Jewish culture, they didn't pick their followers. Their followers, the pupils, picked their teachers. So that Jesus does that, that Jesus takes the initiative, and that Jesus' expectation here is that they will completely follow him and in a sense renounce their livelihood and even their their family ties sets Jesus apart as unique because rabbis didn't do this so this choice of Simon and uh, Peter and Andrew James and John had nothing to do with them. It had nothing to do with their social status. They didn't have any. It had nothing to do with their religious merit. They, They didn't have any. It had everything to do with Jesus' grace and Jesus' mercy. He takes the initiative. And this is the way God always works from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. In the first couple verses of the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, before you were born, I appointed you, I chose you, I knew you. It, it was part of my plan. Uh, our problem is that um, we tend to think that the human condition or the human predicament is just a result of bad decisions we tended to make along the way. And, and, and so we try to kind of reset and uh, move forward by hoping the good in our lives will outweigh uh, the bad. But that isn't the human predicament according to God's word. The human predicament according to God's word is at the core of our beings, we are rebels. Rebels against a holy God. And we are unable to turn to him. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, I'll put this up on the, the screen, and you were dead, not sick, but dead in your transgressions and sins. Now not mostly dead, if you've watched the movie Princess Bride, you know the line, mostly dead. Uh, Paul isn't saying mostly dead here. He's saying totally, completely dead. And dead people can't invite God to make them alive. So we need someone or something outside of us to to make us alive. That's why Paul will say elsewhere in Romans chapter uh, 1 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation because it's the gospel that has the power to make us alive. And that's why he will say later in the same chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, that even faith is a gift. It's a divine gift because we need to be energized, made alive from the outside. Jesus' divine initiative here in calling the four points to this, illustrates this. 
It's not merit, it's mercy, it's grace. It's all grace. Now the reason I start this way is because we are going to talk about a couple of hard things. Following Jesus, uh, fishing for men, women, and children. But if you know that as a follower of Christ, you are a recipient of lavish, eternal grace and, and blessing because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you know that God has chosen you, not because you earned it or you deserve it, but because of His grace, and He has rescued you from your sin, and that your life is no longer about you, it's about what Jesus has done and is doing then you're going to be miles down the road. Because your orientation is going to be a grace orientation. You're going to live by grace. And what's going on here in Mark chapter 1 is all grace. Jesus initiates this. Now I'm going to go hard after what it means to follow me, what it means to be fishers of men. But I want you to see this at the beginning. Uh, because I, I, I meet uh, along the way so many Christians that are discouraged, so many Christians that, that want to give up uh, because they feel like they can never measure up or this happened or, or, or that happened and they feel under the, the pile and, and they despair because along the way they have um, taken their eyes off this wonderful reality that it's grace. It's God's initiative, God's doing and they stopped living in light of the resources of grace, and they've tried to do it on their own, and it just doesn't work. So let me unpack this a little more before I go on. If you and I are going to heed this radical call to follow Jesus and make fishers of men, it really, really helps if we understand that grace means we are never, ever alone. Never alone. Uh, Jesus has not called you to abandon you. So there never will be a single situation, a single relationship, a single struggle, a single job, a single conflict in which you exist all by yourself. You're alone. Now you may feel alone but biblically, you are never alone because you know Christ. And there's a big difference. So doubt, fear, envy, lust, greed, uh, uh, feeling spiritually inadequate, overwhelmed. Uh, uh, this desire we all have for our lives to be pain-free, problem-free, uncomplicated. All, all of that is, is natural living in light of the constant presence of Jesus Christ in our lives is not natural. But grace means you continually tell yourself, I am not alone. I can follow Jesus because I'm not alone. Grace also means change, real change, significant change is always possible. Always possible. No matter how many times uh, you fail, no matter how many times you say yes to something you should have said no to, 
no matter no matter how many times uh, you've blown it or you you feel defeated, you are 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 never stuck. Change, real change, substantive change is always possible. You see, if you know Christ because of what He has done in your life, your total existence has been overwhelmed, taken over, and transformed by incredible, amazing mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And you are different. Now, now you will sometimes think that, man, I can't follow Jesus another step. I, I, there's, no, there's no way I can... Uh, pour myself into another person's life. But change is never a function of you. It's always a, a, a function of the one who loves you so much he died for you. So you never give up hope. Change, real change in your life is possible because of who Jesus is and his grace in your life. Grace also means your weakness isn't your problem your delusion of your own strength is your problem. And I say this and I belabor this in part because I, over the years, have met so many Christians that are discouraged, so many Christians that have punted, so many Christians that are kind of sort of following Jesus. And they're running on spiritual fumes. And I just want to say, man, uh, uh, the good news of the gospel is grace most deeply changes us when we feel most defeated. Grace most deeply works in our lives when we are at the end of our ropes. Your strength is a delusion. Your hope to follow and fish rests not in the size of your ability or your smarts, but in the magnitude of the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I say all this because if you walk out of here today and, and, and think, okay, well, what this means is I've got to follow Jesus better and I've got to fish better. Man, you've missed the point. You've, you've missed it. Because you and I on our own can't do better. Only Jesus can make us better. And so we look to Him and we continue to preach to ourselves a gospel of neediness, our own personal neediness. And that's exactly what Jesus will do as He continues to disciple and reveal Himself to Peter and Andrew, James and John. So the first observation I want to make here as we go into this passage is, man, it's all grace. Life is all grace. Following Jesus, fishing for men, all grace. The second thing I want to say is it's all commitment. Follow me in verse 17 is a call to complete and total commitment to Jesus Christ. It's a call to total abandonment, total surrender. It's a call to deny yourself, and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't soft-pedal it with these four. He expects them to be all in. Now, he's spent some months um, in, in the area, and they've had exposure to Jesus. But what Jesus is saying when he says, follow me, is the most difficult and demanding thing on the planet, yet it's also the most satisfying and rewarding 
opportunity in the universe. Come, follow me. Peter, follow me. Andrew, come, follow me. James and John, follow me. Now, there, there's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and living into obedience to Jesus. And when Jesus says, follow me, he's getting at this difference and he's saying, man, obey me, submit to me, come. And today, our problem is we have this tendency to profess Christ, but we don't want to pay the price. We don't want to pay the cost to follow Christ. So for many of us, our, our Christianity is merely a head thing or it's a church activity if it's a head thing it's like well i believe god exists i i I believe about jesus but too often it's not a heart thing oh man jesus thank you for my job and and thank you that i get to go to work today and i I can't wait to see what you're going to do in my life uh today as, as it plays out give me the grace to live in grace jesus Uh, Do that for me right now. Do it for me today. Now go back to verse 15. I want you to notice at the end of the verse, according to Jesus, you cannot have repentance without faith and you cannot have faith without repentance. Jesus is looking for disciples, not converts. Jesus' call here is total and complete. This is the lifeblood of Christianity. Come, follow me. And we cannot replace it with Kool-Aid because it's easier to digest. It's easier to swallow. You cannot follow Jesus on your own terms. Now I want you to see as Jesus unpacks this later in the Gospel of Mark, how radical and how significant it is to follow him. So turn ahead to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Then he, that is Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Now go to chapter 10 and verse 26. The disciples were even more amazed and said to one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but now with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel who will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then Jesus ratchets up a little. Turn to chapter 13 and verse 9. You must be on your guard. 
you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Wherever, whenever, rather, you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at this time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. It's grace. It's grace. It's the presence of God. We're never alone. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and will have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, as we go into this series, we'll come back to these passages, we'll look at these passages, we'll unpack them, but in each of these passages, there is a call to total, complete abandonment. Follow me. No holding back. Now go back to chapter 1. Jesus' call here in chapter 1 is a call to die, to die to yourself, to deny yourself. It's a call to be totally different than the world around you. In David Platt's book, Follow Me, he says, imagine you're sitting at a breakfast one day and you're waiting to meet with somebody for breakfast and they're 30 minutes late. And you know, you're doing the thing, you're looking at your watch, you're trying to figure out what to do, and, and, and they're running late, and suddenly uh, they come rushing and they say, oh man, I'm sorry I'm so late, I had a flat tire. And um, while I was fixing my flat tire, and it was right beside the, the road, I accidentally stepped out into the road, and I didn't see the semi-truck coming, and the semi-truck hit me head on at 70 miles an hour. But I'm okay, I just need some coffee. And, and you're sitting there. And you know either that this person really isn't a morning person and really, really does need coffee, or this guy is totally deceived. Why? Because if you get hit met by a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour, you're going to look different. You're going to be different. And when a person comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And Jesus invades their life and saves them and, and transforms them. They're going to look different. It's grace. So people who call themselves Christians but look no different than the rest of the world are not Christians. Jesus never said, raise a hand. Jesus never said, pray a prayer. Jesus said, follow me. And before that, he said, repent and believe. Now, this does not mean you abandon your family. It does not mean you quit your job. It does not mean you move to the mountains. It means you live wherever you are, completely and totally abandoned in obedience to Jesus Christ. And because you will fail and because you will stumble, you go and you depend upon His grace to do that. And you serve Jesus in the marketplace, in your neighborhood, uh, with your children. And you pour yourself into others. So to follow Jesus Christ here in Mark chapter 1, as we've seen in these other passages, is to be a blank check for Jesus. And we do not fill in the amount and say, I can't go above that, God. We're a blank check. We, we don't hold back. 
We are always high commitment followers because we have a high commitment Savior who radically, wonderfully loves us. So it's all grace and it's all commitment. Total grace, total commitment. And finally, I want you to see it's all mission, total mission. Now this first, all a grace gets at the who, it sets the table. It's God's initiative, Jesus' initiative. Jesus is the subject of uh, what's going on here. Uh, the, the second aspect of this total commitment gets at the what, what God's calling us to do. This third, all mission, gets at the why we exist, why we live. So we have the who, the what, and the why. And look at verse 17, when Jesus says, fish for men, he's telling us that God gives us grace calls us to total commitment, abandonment, so others might know him through us. So we follow him and we fish for men. And that means all of us have a mission, all of us have a purpose, all of us have a reason for existence, all of us are inherently significant, not just because God made us and because Jesus has saved us, but because we have this unbelievable worldwide mission that others might come to Christ. Fishers of men. And it's a, a mission of multiplication. It's a mission of making disciples that make disciples. So God has never given us grace, so we just spend it on ourselves. Or, or we keep it to ourselves. He has not called us to sit and soak, as I said a couple of weeks ago. He's called us to go and tell. Fish for men. And Jesus here doesn't just say follow. He says follow and fish. He doesn't just say fish. He says follow and fish. You can't have one without the other. So we stand up for Christ. We speak up for Christ. We tell people, hey man, how can I pray for you? We're open about our relationship with Christ. And we tell people our faith story, the story of what God has done in our lives, how he's changed us. We tell them the gospel story, how Jesus died for them. And we go across the street and we go across the hall. And, and, and we're willing to take risks. Because that's how God has made us. And then when people come to Christ, man, we, we invite them into the Word. And we study the Bible with them. And, and we teach them that they can then become a disciple that will in turn make disciples that say, stand up for Christ. Jesus does not merely say, follow me. He promises I will make you fishers of men. Now let me close with this story. Uh, a year and a half ago when my daughter Shannon, husband Luke, granddaughter Eliza uh, moved overseas, moved to Asia as missionaries, I, I want you to know I was okay with that. I was thrilled for God's call on their life. It's what Shannon has always wanted to do. And, and when they decided they were going to go to a, a difficult country in the sense it was a closed country, it was a non-Christian uh, country, I, I was okay with that. I thought that'll be challenging, but uh, God will give you grace, God will give you favor. Then this summer, we communicate by Skyping, and we tend to Skype on Mondays. And uh, this summer, early on, um, they said, you know, the landlord that's been renting us this apartment just came to us and said, I'm sorry, but you guys have to move out for the summer because I've got relatives coming from Russia and they need my place. And Shannon and Luke didn't know it, but that's not unusual in that part of the world. 
And they were kind of processing it, and, and I got to tell you, I wasn't okay with that. I wanted to fly over there and create an international incident. <laughs> this is where my little granddaughter is. And it got worse for Shannon and Luke. It got worse because they couldn't find some place for the summer. And so they ended up in, in a, a place that had no indoor uh, plumbing, little electricity, and a community shower. They have an 18-month-old, or an 18-month-old then. And i I, I got to tell you, I, I wasn't really okay with that. And then one day we, we were Skyping, and, and, and we were talking about it, and Shannon, my daughter, said to me, Dad, would you just relax? Here's what we've decided. We've decided if we choose to look at this as like glorified camping, we're okay. But if we choose to look at it as an apartment, we're not okay. So we're choosing all summer long to look at this as glorified camping. Would you relax, Dad? We're okay. Now how is it that people will move halfway across the world to be engaged in a difficult country and will be okay with, not, with harsh primitive facilities? How is it that intact families that are enjoying all the benefits of living in a country like ours will reach out and adopt children into their families and love those children as if they're very own from the developing world? How is it that people who are busy and up to their eyeballs and stuff will say to friends, man, I want to take you to Alpha. And they'll sit with them week after week that they might hear the gospel. How is it that people will risk jobs and friendships to say, I want to tell you about what Christ has done in my life? The answer is they know they live on mission. That Jesus didn't just say, follow me. Jesus said, follow me because it's going somewhere. I will make you fishers of men and women and students and children. And so we lay down our lives. We give up what's comfortable and familiar and we take risks that other people might know Christ and then when they come to know Christ, man, we disciple them that they might become disciples that make disciples. So church, we cannot sit and soak. We have this privilege, because it's a privilege, to go and tell. Would you pray with me? Father, give us the grace to live by grace. Give us the grace to be bold. Give us the grace to follow your Son, for Jesus' sake. Amen.